Doings of Doyle is sponsored by Belanger Books, home of the best Sherlock Holmes anthologies featuring today's top Sherlockian authors. Belanger Books is the only authorised publisher of Solar Ponds Mysteries, continuing the Sherlock Holmes legacy into the 21st century. Visit them today at belangerbooks.com. Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Hello and welcome to episode 11. Today we're taking our first steps into the Sherlockian world with the Cornish Horror, better known to us all as the Adventure of the Devil's Foot. And it couldn't be a better first step into that world, filled as the story is with grisly murders, fiendish puzzles and our heroes in mortal peril. So to put us in the mood, here's Paul with the synopsis. It is spring 1897 and Sherlock Holmes has been ordered by Harley Street specialist Dr Moore Agar to take some time away from his workload or suffer the inevitable medical consequences. Grudgingly, Holmes takes a rest cure in Cornwall, accompanied by Dr Watson. His recovery, however, is interrupted by a mysterious and unsettling tragedy in a nearby property occupied by the Tregenis family. Brenda Tregenis has been found dead, and two of her brothers, Owen and George, have gone mad overnight. The faces of all three are marked by a look of horror. The third brother, Mortimer, who lodges with the local vicar, left the house before the terrifying visitation, but he too is later found dead under similar circumstances to his sister. Holmes's only leads in these singular events are provided by a strange powder and the presence in the neighbourhood of the celebrated explorer and lion hunter Dr Leon Sterndale. So let's begin with the writing and publication history. Conan Doyle thought that he'd pretty much got rid of Sherlock Holmes for a second time in December 1904 with the publication of The Second Stain, the final story in the series The Return of Sherlock Holmes, in which Sherlock Holmes is retired to the Sussex Downs. But less than four years later, in March 1908, he wrote to Greenhouse Smith offering to write the occasional reminiscence of Sherlock Holmes. And indeed, he agreed to write two stories in the first instance, Wisteria Lodge, which appeared in September-October 1908, and The Bruce Partington Plans, which appeared in December. There's then a gap of two years before the next Sherlock Holmes story, The Devil's Foot, and uh, part of the reason for that was that Conan Doyle was very busy with other projects, notably trying his hand as a dramatist. In June 1909, he put on The Fires of Fate, a play based on his earlier novel, The Tragedy of the Crossgoe, And then towards the end of 1909 and the beginning of 1910, he developed The House of Temperley, a Regency boxing play, which he'd originally begun in 1894 and abandoned and then turned into the novel Rodney Stone and finally into into this play. Cunadol sought a partner to take The House of Temperley to the stage and in fact uh, he couldn't find a a theatre willing to take it, partly because there were so many um, members of cast and also so many set changes, it was a very expensive production. So he actually tried his hand at being an impresario and hired the Adelphi Theatre for six months, putting down the money to get the project off the ground and hiring a troupe of actors. 
And it was towards the end of 1909 that Conan Doyle was engaged in a lecture tour uh, for three months uh, talking about slavery in the Congo. So by the beginning of 1910, Conan Doyle was very tired and he was also financially exposed. And um, it was in uh, mid-March that he decided to, to take a break. And he and his second wife, Jean, went to uh, the Poldu Hotel in Mullion, Cornwall for two weeks to rest and recuperate. And the holiday in Cornwall certainly seems to have done in the power of good because he returned full of energy and instantly launched himself into a series of projects. He became involved in the Oscar Slater case in April. Uh, he wrote a new curtain raiser for the House of Temperley in the same month um, based on uh, a pot of caviar, the sh a short story he'd written. And he also wrote a version of The Speckled Band uh, as a play, largely to replace uh, the House of Temperley, which came to a premature end around the time of uh, beginning of May 1910 with the death of Edward VII, um, which led to an outpouring of public mourning, which was really the final nail in the coffin for the play. But one of the things he did in those immediate weeks following the return from Cornwall was to pen The Adventure of the Devil's Foot. And the story was eventually published in The Strand in December 1910, uh, and in The Strand, New York, in January, February 1911. And the publication in The Strand in the UK was uh, accompanied by uh, a very interesting piece of uh, promotion and publicity by Greenhouse Smith. Robert Veld, in his book The Strand Magazine and Sherlock Holmes, The Two Fixed Points and a Changing Age, gives a bit of background on this. He says, The Devil's Foot occupies a truly unique place within the Sherlock Holmes canon. The publicity that The Strand Magazine gave it was unique. On 7th December 1910... The first and certainly what appears to be the only issue of the Daily Strand was produced. This illustrated tabloid newspaper marked Priceless used the Devil's Foot as its primary content. Under the headline Mysterious Horror in Cornwall, it featured six striking photographs from the scene of the crime. It very deliberately directed its readers to the December issue of the Strand magazine, where a full eyewitness account, as written by Dr Watson under the title of The Adventures of the Devil's Foot, could be found. And if anybody's got a copy of that, that would be fantastic because I've never seen it. No. <laughs> and, um, mm. and actually, if it has got photographs of the scene of the crime, they're almost certainly mm. uh, Conan Doyle's holiday snaps. So the, the publication then came out in, as I said, in December 1910 in The Strand and uh, illustrations were provided by Gilbert Holiday, who uh, provided seven for the UK edition uh, and actually an eighth for the USA edition um, because it was split into two parts for the US publication. And Conan Doyle certainly felt warmly about the adventure of the Devil's Foot because in 1927 he was asked to pick uh, 12 Sherlock Holmes stories that he would uh, uh, recommend. And the ninth in the list was the Devil's Foot, which he described as being grim and new. Um, but actually, it, in many ways, it's, it's not all that new. It seems to be harking back to an earlier time. Uh, yes, there are, there are a couple of um, harkings back, as it were, in this story. The first, as uh, Owen Dudley Edwards has, has, has pointed out, is to um, the captain of the Pole Star, which we uh, examined in, in one of our earlier podcasts. And at the end of that story, uh, we find out something of, of the, the, the background of Captain Craigie of the, the Pole Star. Um, it says, he had been engaged to a young lady of singular beauty residing upon the Cornish coast. During his absence at sea, his betrothed had died under circumstances of peculiar horror. And, and Watson's wording at the start of The, uh, the Devil's Foot uh, suggests that Conan Doyle had actually remembered this detail. Perhaps 
he he'd reread the story uh, at around this time um, and decided to 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 resurrect it in in a Sherlock Holmes surrounding. What Watson says, I received a telegram from Holmes last Tuesday. Why not tell them of the Cornish horror, strangest case I have handled? I have no idea what backward sweep of memory had brought the matter fresh to his mind, or what freak had caused him to desire that I should recount it. Uh, and that very wording suggests that 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 Conan Doyle may have have gone back to the earlier story and, mm. and you know got, got uh, his his mind looking on it. Mm. And like the Captain of the Polestar, this is a, a, a gothic work. It's uh, very reminiscent of Conan Doyle's early works in many ways. Uh, and also very reminiscent of, of uh, one of his uh, earlier but more recent, uh, in that way, Sherlock Holmes stories. Watson says of the area they're staying in, in Cornwall, It was a country of rolling moors, lonely and dun-coloured, with an occasional church tower to mark the site of some old-world village. In every direction upon these moors there were traces of some vanished race which had passed utterly away, and left as its sole record strange monuments of stone, irregular mounds which contained the burned ashes of the dead, and curious earthworks which hinted at prehistoric strife. The glamour and mystery of the place, with its sinister atmosphere of forgotten nations, appealed to the imagination of my friend, and he spent much of his time in long walks and solitary meditations upon the moor. Uh, and all this brings into mind a, a, an earlier story set in um, the, the moorlands of southwestern England, uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles. And you've got another connection when, when Mr. Roundhay, the, uh, the, the, the vicar in the Devil's Foot, declares after the death of Mortimer Tregennis, We are devil-ridden, Mr. Holmes. My poor parish is devil-ridden, he cried. Satan himself is loose in it. We are given over to, into his hands. And, and you remember in The Hound, Holmes muses of Dartmoor, before they actually get there, mm. that yes, the setting is a worthy one if the devil did desire to have a hand in the affairs of, of men. So it, it's almost like um, Conan Doyle almost feels he hasn't left all this, this um, pseudo-diablery of, of, of southwestern England behind, and he's, he's got more to say and, and puts it into this story. And as we said at the beginning, Conan Doyle had uh, only recently stayed in Cornwall, so he'd had opportunity to refresh his knowledge and understanding of, of the region. Between 7th and 21st of March, he stayed with his second wife, Jean, at the Poldhu Hotel in Mullion, Cornwall. Um, the hotel had been built in 1901 for the workers who set up the telegraph station from which Marconi sent the first wireless signal across the Atlantic. Um, and uh, the hotel still exists today as a, as a care home. And Conan Doyle really does draw on his knowledge of the surrounding area. There are references throughout the story to, to real places like Red Ruth Helston, St Ives, the Lizard Peninsula. Um, but he also layers on this uh, some imaginary names that uh, disguise real places. So uh, Predanic Wallace becomes Tredanic Wallace, and as Owen Dudley Edwards has pointed out, Tradanic means uh, electric in Cornish, which is almost certainly another nod to the uh, Marconi wireless station and uh, experiment. Um, and there have been lots of books and articles written identifying the real-life locations of uh, the, the places within uh, the Devil's Foot. But just as the, the moor in The Hound, Cornwall comes across as a as another character in this story, it's incredibly rich, and Conan Doyle clearly had a great interest in, in the location 
and its heritage. Yeah, and and um, Watson describes Holmes uh, at the time they're taking this this break in Cornwall uh, and, and Holmes's pursuits um, during his rescue. Um, it says of him that the ancient Cornish language had also arrested his attention, and he had, I remember, conceived the idea that it was akin to the Chaldean and had been largely derived from the Phoenician traders in tin. He had received a consignment of books upon philology, and was settling down to develop this thesis. Um, Conan Doyle himself, while he was in Cornwall, was, was, was interested in, in the same subject, um, and was, was exploring the origins of the Cornish language, um, and also looking into the, um, the, the burial mounds and so on that were mentioned in, in, in the earlier quote. Um, and this was when he actually wasn't playing golf, which he spent a lot of time doing in Cornwall <laughs> as well. Um, he was he was very drawn to the the the, the kind of the, the difference of the history of Cornwall and and the perceived otherness of Cornwall and its people and culture and in Through the Magic Door, which had been published um, three years before his his holiday in Cornwall, he he actually wrote, "There is something wonderful, I think, about the land of Cornwall. That long peninsula extending out into the ocean has caught all sorts of strange floating things." and has held them there in isolation, until they have woven themselves into the texture of the Cornish race. What is this strange strain which lurks down yonder, and every now and then throws up a great man with singular, un-English ways and features for all the world to marvel at? It is not Celtic, nor is it the dark old Iberian. Further and deeper lie the springs. Is it not Semitic, Phoenician, the roving men of Tyre, with noble southern faces and oriental imaginations, who have in far-off days forgotten their blue Mediterranean and settled on the granite shores of the northern sea? And, and this um, this world he is talking about here, um, the, 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 the ancient world and, and the almost semi-mystical roots of, of, of the Cornish race, as, as he perceived it, ties in with the, his interests in the ancient world, um, and and he was getting involved near his home in, in amateur archaeology. Uh, and he also, in, in his fictional work, uh, wrote a wonderful series of stories set in the ancient world uh, called The Last Galley, uh, which was um, issued in the Conan Doyle stories as Tales of Long Ago. Um, and these are ostensibly stories about the ancient world, uh, but they also act as, as, as parables and allegories uh, about the modern world. Mm, and you pick up in that description about uh, the tin connection to to Cornwall, and that actually comes out as a as a throwaway line in the last galley. There's a reference to um, the uh, the tin islands on the west of Europe as being the natural inheritors of the naval crown of the Romans. Yes, yeah, so it's all tying in with this this research and these ideas are, are, are flying around in his head and 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 almost needing to get put down on paper. Mm. But he he also talks in in um, through the magic door uh, about the 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 artistic effect almost mm. uh, of of this this otherness of of the the Cornish, um, and he 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 says whence came the wonderful face and great personality of Henry Irving, how strong how beautiful how un-Saxon it was, I only know that his mother was a Cornish woman. Whence came the intense, glowing imagination of the Brontes, so unlike the Miss Austin-like calm of their predecessors, 
again. I only know that their mother was a Cornish woman. Um, this is very interesting in, in, in the context of the, uh, the Devil's Foot, because the point is very specifically made uh, about Le Leon Sterndale, and he, he talks specifically of his Cornish mother. Mm. Yeah, and, and as, as an aside on this issue, it, it, it is also rather interesting that, that Conan Doyle denies the, the, the strange strain he sees in, in, in the Cornish. Um, th th he denies that it is Celtic, um, mm. uh, whereas Owen Dudley Edwards, um, in his uh, discussion of the story in the Oxford edition of, of His Last Bow, believes that the, the, the Devil's Foot is certainly the most Celtic story he ever wrote. Mm. This might perhaps be overstating the case, but there is an element definitely within the Devil's Foot of, of this idea, this old almost cliche of, of, of the Celtic feud story, mm. um, which you also get in a different form in, in The Valley of Fear. Yeah, absolutely. And it is uh, Owen Dudley Edwards in that same volume you've just mentioned who, who um, casts another interesting aside on The Devil's Foot, which is the title, the origins of the title, uh, the name The Devil's Foot, comes from a poem by John Donne, the great metaphysical poet, which begins, go and catch a falling star. Uh, the actual uh, opening verse is, uh, go and catch a falling star, get with child a mandrake root, tell me where all past years are, or who cleft the devil's foot. And Owen sort of leaves it at, at that as a source of, of the title. But the choice of poem, the choice of inspiration for the title is is really quite interesting. Um, the poem is essentially about how uh, all beautiful women are unfaithful. And uh, the speaker challenges the reader in that opening stanza to do several impossible things, uh, such as discovering who gave the devil cloven hoofs. But one of the things he's asking the reader to do is to find a woman who is both beautiful and faithful. And in this wonderful sarcastic tone that you often get with Don, uh, the, the the speaker asks the reader to tell him if he's identified a woman uh, who is both beautiful and faithful and uh, uh, so that the speaker could go on a quest and meet her. Uh, and then he casually says, but by the time I turn up, she'll probably have been unfaithful to another two or three men. The, the interesting thing about it in the context of The Devil's Foot is that it's got the twin themes of exploration and faithfulness, both of which come into the story in the character of Leon Sterndale. And the other thing that we get from the Dunn poem is the reference to the Mandrake Root, which could very well be the inspiration for Radix Pedis Diaboli, the Devil's Foot Root. Yeah, the, 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 the Mandrake Root, or to give it its Latin name, Atropa Mandragora, um, has a great cultural history in, in both folkloric and, and esoteric um, traditions. There, there are two main types of mandrake. You, you, there's the male white mandragora and the female black mandragora. And uh, the, the latter's root is often forked or cloven, which is very suggestive, obviously, mm. of, the, of, of the devil's foot. And the, the root itself you know, contains a narcotic juice, which when distilled in wine can cause death, insanity or delirium, which sounds very familiar. <laughs> um, it could also be used, or so they thought, to cure gout or insomnia. And to make love potions, um, not really an ordeal drug, uh, the way <laughs> Doyle describes. Um, uh, but you, you suspect that over the years, as well as its use in various magical ceremonies, uh, that, that it will have probably been a favourite with poisoners. Mm. And there may be a more scientific explanation for the uh, origins of the 
Devil's Foot Root in the form of the toxic calabar bean, which had been studied by one of the great Edinburgh medics, uh, Sir Robert Christensen. Uh, Christensen uh, was still teaching at uh, Edinburgh Medical School during Conan Doyle's first year there, and uh, he's famous for having undertaken an experiment of uh, beating a corpse to discover whether bruises could be produced post-mortem during the Birkin hair trial, which, of course, is how we first see Sherlock Holmes in the study in Scarlet. That's what he's doing in the in the Bart's um, in Bart's hospital. But Christensen also nearly killed himself by self-administering the the calabar bean. He he narrowly saved himself by drinking shaving water uh, to bring it back up. And Conan Doyle had his own experience of uh, of self-poisoning. At one point, he he experimented with. Uh, tincture of gelsemium and uh, progressively uh, increased the dose over a number of days recording the uh, effects on his body and uh, <laughs> he only stopped when he got to chronic diarrhea I think and then he wrote up the article uh, for the British Medical Journal. But he also wrote a letter in which he told his mother what he was doing of all people <laughs> and just said I have been experimenting upon myself with gelsemium. I increased my dose until I reached 200 minims, and it had some curious physiological results. <laughs> uh, but he also adds in the letter that Mrs. H said she would write to you unless I stopped it. And uh, Mrs. H was the, the wife of, of his mentor at this time, Dr. Reginald Rudcliffe Hoare. Uh, and Mrs. H obviously rather disapproved of what he was up to. <laughs> It, it's also interesting in this context to think of Holmes himself, who is, is one of literature's most notorious uh, self-poisoners. Mm. Uh, he even says to Watson in the course of this story, I think, Watson, that I shall resume that course of tobacco poisoning, which you have so often and so justly condemned. And it's also an earlier, very interesting oblique reference um, to, to his, his other drug habit of, uh, or possible reference to his other drug habit of, of um, cocaine, mm. uh, where Watson talks about Holmes's iron constitution showed some symptoms of giving way in the face of constant hard work of a most exacting kind, and then adds, aggravated perhaps by occasional indiscretions of his own. Mm -hmm. And we know Jean, um, Conan Doyle's second wife, was quite concerned about the public perception of Sherlock Holmes as a um, drug user. And um, it's quite possible that that was a reason why some of this was treated rather more more um cryptically yeah and and with taking the uh, the devil's foot route maybe this is kind of now look where it leads to when you do all these these things this is this is where you end up <laughs> <laughs> and while we're talking about the inspiration for the devil's foot route it's worth pausing to think about a possible inspiration for this story um there's a short story by edgar Allan poe entitled the imp of the perverse which uh, was written in 1845 which is about a man who's committed the perfect murder by killing his friend with a poisoned candle. Uh, the narrator of the story says, I knew my victim's habit of reading in bed. I knew too that his apartment was narrow and ill-ventilated. But I need not vex you with the impertinent details. I need not describe the easy artifices by which I substituted in his bedroom candle stand a wax light of my own making for the one which I there found. The next morning, he was discovered dead in his bed, and the coroner's verdict was death by the visitation of God. And the devil's foot is almost this in reverse, as um, there's also Roundhay's belief that his parishioners are being killed by the visitation of the devil, which uh, comes up a couple of times. And, and thinking back to the title of this story, the imp of the perverse uh, is the urge to do something that one knows one shouldn't, in this case, to confess to the perfect murder, which is 
what the bulk of the short story is actually about. And I, and I do wonder if there's a further allusion to this in Sterndale's actions. At one point, Sterndale takes a very identifiable reddish gravel from his driveway, which he then carries with him somewhat improbably to the house of Mortimer Tregenis and then throws against the windows to wake up um, his victim. And it's only through this identifiable gravel that Sherlock Holmes is able to place Leon Sterndale at the scene, scene of the crime and then track him down. And it's it's almost like Sterndale uh, wants to reveal his story, wants to actually get caught here. It's 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 almost like the imp of the perverse actually playing out in the character of, of Leon Sterndale. Yeah, I, I feel that another literary influence on uh, on the story may also have, have, have come from uh, Arthur Macken's uh, novella, The Great God Pan, mm. published in 1894, one of the great uh, 1890s decadent horror novels. And it starts with a, a doctor in a remote Welsh retreat operating on a young woman's brain to alter her perception and to, as he puts it, lift the veil. Mm. And then what she sees uh, when this is done just destroys her reason and madness is is, is then followed by death. Uh, she's seen the great god Pan and, and ultimately has a daughter by him as well, by, by some strange means. But the, the, the book itself was a, was a cause celeb and it's, it's likely that um, Conan Doyle, with, with his tastes, would... would and his 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 love of the gothic would certainly have, have heard of this book mm. um and he definitely read macken's next uh, book the three imposters published in 1895 um he borrowed a copy of that from his friend jerome k jerome and he later commented to jerome your pal macken may be a genius all right but i don't take him to bed with me again <laughs> <laughs> And since I've just mentioned Dr. Leon Sterndale, it's worth pausing at this point to, to talk a bit about the origins of his character. Yeah, I think um, when you're talking about um, Sterndale, it, it's as well just to read out Conan Doyle's description of him. Uh, it's mm. the huge body, the craggy and deeply seamed face with the fierce eyes and hawk-like nose, the grizzled hair which nearly brushed our cottage ceiling, the beard, golden at the fringes and white near the lips, save for the nicotine stain from his perpetual cigar. All these were as well known in London as in Africa, and could only be associated with the tremendous personality of Dr. Leon Sterndale, the great lion hunter and explorer. Mm. So you've got this description, it's this tremendous physical presence, and then it's the tremendous personality to go with it. Um, and it, it's it's interesting to speculate um, where where Doyle's inspiration for this character may may have uh, lain, um, and I, I certainly think one of them has has got to be the uh, the great explorer, the orientalist, and uh, erotologist uh, Richard Burton, mm. who was just a, a huge cultural force. Uh, in the, the the mid to late nineteenth century, um, he he was was famous for his various explorations of of, of East and West Africa, uh, and perhaps most celebrated for his his undercover trip to to the forbidden city of Mecca, which of course was later copied by Holmes and, and mm. probably inspired. That's where you know, Conan Doyle will have been inspired by reading or hearing about Burton doing this 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 exact uh, thing. Um, so Burton's there in the consciousness, and I, I really do think um, he, he's, he's important to Sterndale. Burton was, was out in Western Central Africa um, between 1861 and 1864 when he was the British consul 
um, at, at Fernando Po, uh, which Conan Doyle himself had actually visited um, when he was the ship's surgeon on the SS Mayumba, uh, going along the West African coast mm. in, in late 1881, early 1882. Burton was a, was a tremendously energetic man, which is what you get about Sterndale as well, and, and couldn't just sit in his consulate. He had to explore the area around, and, and he produced books such as Abiyakuta and the Cameroon's Mountains, A Mission to Galili, King of Dahomey, and uh, he also wrote uh, a book entitled From Liverpool to Fernando Po. Um, he published this anonymously as an FRGS, a fellow of the Royal mm. Geographical Society. But this was exactly the the, the trip that Conan Doyle took uh, in, in the early 1880s. Um, and coincidentally, um, it's one of those things they never met, but in the latter part of, of Doyle's own voyage to West Africa, uh, Burton was back in exactly that part of the world uh, working for a, a gold mining concern. And Burton may have been a, a, a kind of distant figure in, in um, Conan Doyle's childhood, um, because when he was he was five or six, uh, one of the Doyle family friends, uh, John Hill Burton, uh, was actually commissioned by Blackwoods to help with, with a book called What Led to the Discovery of the Source of the Nile mm. uh, by John Hunting Speak. And Speak and Burton had both gone in search of the source of the Nile and then fallen out with each other and wrote their own separate books. And Hill Burton became involved with, with, with helping Speak to write his book. And it, it's interesting, Hill Burton is, is the family friend who may have been the inspiration, or was the inspiration rather, for Dr. Hill Barton, Watson's pseudonym in The Illustrious Client. Mm, mm. And I think uh, Richard Burton is almost certainly the the primary influence for the character of Leon Sterndale. There are a couple of others that might inform that character, the shape of that character. There's um, there's a Cornish explorer called Richard Lander, who um, was the first European to discover that the Niger led to the Atlantic in his uh, uh, explorations of, of, of West Africa. And he died um, at the age of 30 in 1834. 1835, um, the people of Truro built a, a monument to him. So, if you think about Conan Doyle's visit down to the uh, Lizard Peninsula, he will have gone via Truro, and 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 there was this uh, statue to Richard Lander at the time. But there's also uh, uh, another really fascinating possibility here that the character could indeed be informed by President Roosevelt, uh, 26th President of the United States, who uh, Conan Doyle uh, met several times towards the end of May 1910, at exactly the time that he was writing uh, The Devil's Foot. And Roosevelt had just returned from an African safari. He'd been on safari for, I think, three or four months, where he'd gone big game hunting. Uh, And this wasn't a small pastime. This was almost big game hunting on an industrial scale. He's said to have come back with 11,500 animals. Um, And uh, and actually, you you get um, a good sense of how Conan Doyle reacted to to Roosevelt in uh, Memories and Adventures in chapter 23 he talks about um uh, about Roosevelt and while he's not necessarily physically the same type as Sterndale you get a sense of the personality Conan Doyle writes Roosevelt was not a big nor so far as one could see a powerful man but he had tremendous dynamic force and an iron will which may account for his reputation as an athlete so as much as Teddy Roosevelt wasn't um the physical type for Leon Sterndale the fact that he'd recently returned from Africa, big game hunting, and and the sort of personality 
uh, might well have found its way at least a little bit into the character of Leon Sterndale. So Sterndale's also an interesting mix in the, the way he's described, in, in that you have this this big game hunter, but he's also Dr. Leon Sterndale. Mm. Um, and when um, Conan Doyle was, was on the Mayumba voyage, he, he met at one point the, uh, the, the American consul in Monrovia, uh, Henry Highland Garnet, who was a man who had been the son of who was the, the the son of slaves, and and Doyle says of him he had thought a great deal about African travel, uh, and then said to to Conan Doyle, the only way to explore Africa is to go without arms and with a few servants. Mm-hmm. You would not like it in England if a body of men came armed to the teeth and marched through your land. The Africans are quite as sensitive. And then Doyle comments, it was the method of Livingston as against the method of Stanley. The former takes the braver and better man. Um, and, and when he's talking about Sterndale, we know Sterndale can, can handle himself with, with, with weaponry because of his, his big game hunting side. But there is also the, um, the, the other side to him. And, and when Holmes has discovered Sterndale's killing of, of Mortimer Tregenis, he, he, he says, um, what were your plans? He asked at last. I had intended to bury myself in Central Africa. My work there is but half finished. And Holmes tells him, go and do the other half. And presumably his, his work isn't just going back to shoot lots more lions. Um, it, it's it's the, the, the fact Watson refers to him as the famous doctor. So mm. presumably there is this almost living, Livingstonian side to Sterndale uh, as against the, the kind of all marching, all shooting uh, European imperialist. Mm. The, 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 there's the two sides to his character: the strong man and the caring man. Uh, and as as well as these um, real life examples of, of of hunters and and explorers, uh, there's there's also the the great fictional example of of H. Rider Haggard's great uh, great hero, Alan Quatermain, the, the, who is the great white hunter, mm. but also lover of Africa who first appears in King Solomon's Mines in 1885. And, and in, interestingly, he enters the, the public consciousness in, in a great way as well, and, and, and as a, a, an archetype, uh, just as Sherlock Holmes did. And, and he also lasts from the 1880s to the 1920s. Mm. He's an ongoing character, like Holmes is for Doyle, Quartermain is for Haggard. And on the topic of Africa, it's clear that Africa was very much at the forefront of Conan Doyle's mind at this point in time. He had spent the last three months of 1909 on an extended lecture tour to talk about the crimes of the Congo. And that lecture tour he undertook with uh, E.D. Morel, who many people believe to be uh, an inspiration for the character of Malone in the in the Challenger books. Yeah, A.D. Morell ran this campaign in conjunction with the, the British consul in the Congo, um, Roger Casement, who was absolutely horrified at um, the conditions he found in the Belgian Congo, uh, which was essentially run as a private fiefdom of the Belgian king, Leopold II. Uh, it, it just ran uh, on, on a, a system of, of slavery and, and torture. And mm. Casement felt that he had to shout about this and, and make the world aware of, of what was actually going on. Uh, and so Morel became involved as a journalist and then, he interested Conan Doyle in the, in the whole issue as well. And Conan Doyle was very, very impressed uh, by, by Roger Casement. And, mm. and Casement himself may have been a, a, another another influence on, on Leon Sterndale. 
in Thomas Packenham's um, classic work on the the scramble for Africa, uh, he describes Caseman as sometimes he would disappear into the bush for weeks with only a stick for a weapon and only one Luanda and a couple of English bulldogs for company. This this is the kind of man who mm. buries himself deep in the African jungles, and it, it's exactly the sort of character Sterndale is, and and some of Sterndale's odd moral strength also seems to, 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 to come from, from Roger Casement. Mm. And another popular campaign that Conan Doyle was heavily involved with at this time uh, is the uh, campaign for divorce law reform, which does make a, a, a fleeting appearance in the story. Um, Sterndale at one point is talking about uh, his relationship with, with Brenda Tregenis and says, for years I have loved her, for years she has loved me. There is the secret of that Cornish seclusion which people have marvelled at. It has brought me close to the one thing on earth that was dear to me. I could not marry her, for I have a wife who has left me for years, and yet whom, by the deplorable laws of England, I could not divorce. And um, Conan Doyle had become president of the Divorce Law Reform Union in 1906, uh, shortly after his first wife's death. And in 1909, he wrote an influential essay which really contributed to the establishment of a royal commission to investigate uh, changes to the statute. Um, The commission uh, and the work of the uh, Divorce Law Reform Union, uh, particularly a a highly active member on the committee called um, May Seton Tideman, who has been largely written out of the story of the Divorce Law uh, Union. Um, but, But the work of the commission and the union eventually paved the way for the Uh, Matrimonial Causes Act of 1923, which started to rebalance the rights of of men and women in the case of of divorce. Now, some people have thought that uh, Conan Doyle's interest in divorce law reform may have stemmed from his um, relationship with his first wife, who was seriously ill with tuberculosis. Um, But but there's no evidence that he ever really thought of um, divorcing Louise. And in fact, I think it would be very out of character for him to have considered that. But I think it's much more likely that Conan Doyle was thinking about his parents' relationship. Charles Altamont Doyle was uh, famously a a chronic alcoholic. And uh, obviously, there was no possibility there of divorce for Mary Doyle. The interesting thing that Sterndale says is that uh, I have a wife who has left me for years and um, and the story is set in 1897. There had actually been a change in the law in 1895, which allowed women to leave the household, not to divorce, but certainly to live separately from their husbands. And one of the grounds for doing that was desertion. So it's quite possible that one of the reasons why Sterndale was without a wife in Cornwall was because... Um, she had good grounds for desertion on the basis of his frequent visits to Central Africa. So we're getting to the end of the podcast on this one, and it had been a long while since I had read uh, The Devil's Foot properly, and uh, I really, really enjoyed going back to this story again. How did you find it, Paul? It's I've I found it a it's a really enjoyable, really interesting story, and it, it, it's it's fascinating how it ties in with a lot of the earlier work of of, of Conan Doyle, with, mm. with re, almost a return to this 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 gothic, this this dark theme, and also the the, the kind of almost boyish introduction of this, this great lion hunting you know, African adventurer who. who it seems totally out of place in in a horror story set in Cornwall, mm. and it's, it's it's just this this rather lovely juxtaposition of of, of oddities in it, and um and and also the way it ties in with with 
say, the Hound of the Baskervilles and mm. uh, your Holmes wandering into the, the realms of the Irrational, which, of course, he'll do later on again with the, the, the Sussex Vampire. Mm. Um, but it, it is this this whole idea of, of, of Conan Doyle looking back. It's a very reflective period of his life, it, mm. it, it, it feels. And, and uh, again, with the, with the, the character of, of Sterndale, it... it brings to, to mind when you know about um, Conan Doyle's childhood and so on, in Memories and Adventures, he writes about his very first uh, preserved piece of work. Uh, <laughs> and he says, I wrote a little book and illustrated it myself in early days. There was a man in it and there was a tiger who amalgamated shortly after they met. But this is this kind of um, the, the boyish love of, of, of the, the, um, the, 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 the tropical adventurer type. Mm. Tying together with 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 the, the the darker adult themes that are very much in in place in this story mm. of 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 the, the kind of repressed energies and 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 moral conundrums which which the the, the story is absolutely rife with. Mm. And it's interesting that this story is one of those. Um, it's a later Sherlock Holmes story. It's it's from the collection His Last Bow, and. Often the later stories don't get a terribly good press. They, there's a sort of received wisdom that um, post Reichenbach, Sherlock Holmes was not as good as it was before. And, and, and strangely enough, that idea in the popular, the, 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 the man who's supposed to have said that to Doyle himself was a Cornish fisherman. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, yeah. But I, I really, I've always been rather sceptical of that, that point of view. And I think The Devil's Foot and some of the stories around it really do show themselves to be incredibly good works what really stands out for me in this one is the sort of double mystery. The fact that you have the poisoning of the Trigenesis at the beginning, and then you get the death of Mortimer Trigenis later on, this sort of double mystery. And Conan Doyle had played with that structure six years earlier with the second stain, which has similarly the theft of the letter, and then it has um, the the death of the agent who we believe is responsible for the theft. Uh, and that, that lends itself to, to making this a very pacey story, the other thing that really struck me what, reading it again was how rich the imagery is within the, um, the tale. Uh, not only do you get Cornwall lifting off the page as another character, but you also get these wonderful shorthands. Um, there's a great description of, um, of Sherlock Holmes at one point. He sat coiled in his armchair, his haggard and ascetic face hardly visible amid the blue swirl of his tobacco smoke, his black brows drawn down, his forehead contracted, his eyes vacant and far away. It's a brilliant image. And then you have these wonderful moments that really stand up there with the best in the Sherlock Holmes canon, particularly this moment of, uh, uh, of poisoning where Holmes experiments rather foolishly, it has to be said, with the devil's foot root. And it's only uh, Watson's sharp thinking that that ultimately saves him. And that's one of those very televisual moments within the story. So it's it's uh, no great surprise that this has been adapted several times. It's been adapted for radio several times. But in terms of cinema and television, there are three great adaptations of um, The Devil's Foot. There's the Eileen Norwood in 1921, which is a very compressed version of the tale. You then have the Douglas Wilmer in 1965, which is surprisingly faithful uh, and also has the most wonderful opening sequence uh, with the Trigenesis. And then you get, of course, the, the terrific Jeremy Brett episode in 1988. Um, and the thing that I think always makes these quite fun to watch again is actually that moment of, of 
experimenting with the devil's foot. Eileen Norwood just has a sort of mild lift of the eyebrows when he's being poisoned by the root. Whereas you get Douglas Wilmer has this sort of rictus grin, a bit like he's uh, had an overdose of calcium. Uh, and then we get to the famous bit with Jeremy Brett, which um, is rather more akin to a 1980s pop video. Um, and the story, the story really lends itself very well to those television adaptations because it's so pacey. And you've also got two very, very powerful characters facing off one another in, in uh, Holmes and, and Sterndale. Mm. And it's interesting when you talk about as well with the mystery within a mystery, because Sterndale himself, the background is a mystery. Who is his wife? Mm. Why is he married to this? Why did he not marry Brenda earlier? How How is a man who comes across as so self-reliant as he is, how does he come to be tied into this marriage? Mm. It's, it's, it, there's plenty to speculate about. Yes, yes, indeed. So that brings us to the end of this podcast. You can find the show notes at doingsofdoyle.com and follow us on Twitter for more updates. So, Paul, what are we going to be looking at next time? Next time, we will be going to the court of Louis XIV and the dark forests of North America in the pages of Conan Doyle's 1893 historical novel, The Refugees. So join us next month for The Refugees. Until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. Christensen almost killed himself by self-administering the calabar bean. He actually had to drink his own shaving water to make himself sick so that he, he didn't permanently die. Oh, he didn't permanently die. He died temporarily. Oh, no. <laughs> There's our outtake. <laughs> Picture yourself in a boat on a river With tangerine trees and marmalade skies Ah! Holmes! Ah! Holmes! Ah! For God's sake, can you hear me?